want to avoid that hellish feeling that you feel whenever you're in the underworld for a period of time and your skin dries up? Well, worry no more, because today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skin Care. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work-from-home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs with three easy-to-follow steps. Why should you check them out? Well, simple ingredients and effective results for one thing. A perfect upgrade if you're washing your face with a bar of soap or that drugstore face wash. Right now, Romer Skin Care is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, romerskincare.com. Impress your partner and get happy skin. Far happier than the skin we have down here. I'm telling you, this heat does nothing for me. Okay, I'll be completely honest with you. I have a feeling I may be a little out of my depth when it comes to today's subject. Partly because back when I was among the living, I barely read any comic books. Sure, I knew of the big names, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men, and various others, but only because I used to watch them on TV, not read them in the comics where they originated. So, at the risk of sounding like a complete idiot, I think I'm going to need a little help from the outside. Luckily, during the summer break, I paid a visit to Hell's Gift Shop and picked up a couple of these babies. This is called a Pocket Hell Dragger. Once I set the proper coordinates, and if all goes well, I should be able to drag down any mortal being to assist me with my duties. I just hope they're both home right now, because otherwise I might create a new crater in the Earth's crust. Okay, now let me just aim carefully, and... Ooh. I'm telling you, just because graphene is the closest real-world element comparable to vibranium doesn't mean it can be made in real life. We still need more advances in technology first. Oh, please. Captain America's shield was made of this stuff, and it was made back in World War II. If it could happen back then, it can certainly happen here and now. Yeah, but you'd have to build refineries, hire scientists... What the hell was that? Ha-ha! <laughs> Caught me a twofer! What's happening? I don't know, but at least our collectibles are insured. Crap, I forgot to pay my insurance bill. You what? How was I supposed to know this was going to happen today? That's the whole point of insurance! <laughs> you okay, Eddie? Uh, I'm fine. You, Peter? Yeah, sure. Where the hell are we? The hell is where you are. Who are you? It doesn't matter who I am. What matters is who you are to me right now. Then who the hell are we to you? You're going to be my special helpers today. I'm going to be looking at some TV shows that are comic book related. And I'm going to need you two to make sure I don't sound foolish when I do. After you help me, I'll return you to the mortal world. And what if we refuse? Then I will see to it that you get permanent occupancy on our heresy floor. There, you'll be placed into our nitpicker's wing where you'll spend all of eternity listening to message board trolls telling you that wouldn't happen on everyday parts of one's life. For instance, you, kid, how do you brush your teeth? I would hope I use a toothbrush. Superman wouldn't use a toothbrush? He would fly around the earth backwards in time to make sure he would never eat those cavity-causing foods and- Well then, I guess we have no choice. Is it because we said bad things about the Fantastic Four movies? I thought everybody hated them. Not everybody hated them. No, you're both here because you're two of the biggest comic book fanatics online who doesn't work for Kevin Smith, and I could use a little expertise on this particular subject. So, you're saying that if we help you, you'll send us back to the surface, and all we have to do is help you talk about a comic book-related TV show? Well, not just any show. Or in this case, shows. Hell wouldn't be hell without a dash of irony. Now, according to the info I see on my pocket hell dragger, you are... Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson, and the two of you host a show called The Marvelists, where you spend a great deal of time going over various bits and pieces of Marvel-related minutia. 
Is that correct? Uh, sure. Good. Since you know your way around the true believers, then you should have no problem at all looking at this. It was perhaps inevitable that the man-made world would one day require a unique woman. A Wonder Woman. Check, please. Come on, Eddie. If we don't do this, we're going to be stuck here. And something tells me this place forgot to pay their air conditioning bill a long time ago. Oh, like you forgot to pay the insurance bill for our collectibles? Oh, very funny. Look, I know you don't care for DC Comics, but if it means getting spared a lava bath, we got to do what this guy says, or we're going to end up Cajun-style nerds. And when we do get back to the surface, I promise to pay the insurance bill. <sighs> Fine, but only because I don't want to miss the Falcon and Winter Soldier if it ever drops on Disney+. Plus. Okay, where do we begin? Well, I'll begin with an introduction to the subject, and all you guys have to do is fill in the gaps where needed. Mostly the historical comic book info and other parts where there's a deviation from the source material. Other than that, just make it make sense, and you're good. So, when do we start? Right about... now. Abandon all remote controls. Ye who enter here. This is Telehell. Wonder Woman has long been an icon of the superhero universe for nearly 80 years and counting, and on some occasions, she's measured as equal or greater than her male superhero counterparts. Still to this day, millions look to Wonder Woman as a source of inspiration, from young girls wanting to make a difference when they grow up, to grown women who are strong and independent. So popular was the character back then that it only felt like a matter of time before people were willing to test the limits of just how popular the character would be in other mediums. Of course, during the first 30 years of the character's circulation, her male counterparts had already made their marks in numerous ways. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! Strange visitor from another planet. Superman would have his own series of animated theatrical shorts made by Max Fleischer, as well as a TV series and subsequent theatrical film starring George Reeves while Batman faced a similar career trajectory by making his mark with a number of theatrical two-reel short subjects, but most notably by that point, the 1966 Adam West TV series created by William Dozier. Certainly, if those two superpowers could make it big in another medium, Wonder Woman should have fared just as well. And before you think to yourself, Hey, narrator, of course Wonder Woman made it. She wound up with a hit TV series, a series of hit movies, and she was one of the super friends. You're way ahead of me before we even reach that conclusion. For the heroine who wore satin tights, fighting for your rights, and the old red, white, and blue, had a rather circuitous flight pattern to pass in order to achieve success in a medium outside the comics. A pattern that needed more than an invisible jet to navigate its way through the fires of Telehell. Okay, comic boys, take it away. In 1934, Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson founded a publication house that would become one of the first American publishers of comic books. The company would originally be known as National Allied Publications, but as the years went by with the creation of additional comic book labels, mergers, and acquisitions, the company would eventually be known as DC Comics. Regardless of history, it is this same publishing house that would come up with some of the most iconic characters ever put to paper, primarily Superman and Batman. Later in 1940, psychologist and inventor of both the polygraph machine and the systolic blood pressure test, William Charles Marston gave an interview to Family Circle magazine, where he and his partner, Olive Byrne, waxed philosophically on the great educational potential of comic books, and how, in the right circumstances, comic books could be used as a force of good in the real world, let alone the world of fiction. Marston's thoughts caught the attention of another comic book pioneer, Max Gaines, then the publisher for National Periodicals and All-American Publications. Two brands which would eventually become a part of what we now know as DC Comics. Gaines hired Marston as an educational consultant for the publisher, and it was thanks to that position that Marston was able to get the wheels turning for the next great comic book character, one that would be as strong as all the other ones that had been created by that point in time, but at the same time would be one who, in Marston's words, would triumph not with fists or firepower, but with love. 
After explaining the concept to his wife Elizabeth, she suggested that those characteristics might work best if the hero was a woman. And the rest is history. Which brings us back to the initial quandary. If Wonder Woman was just as popular as Superman and Batman in the comics, who was to stop anybody in showbiz from giving her an adaptation not unlike her male counterparts? Well, one name we mentioned at the top was a TV producer named William Dozier, whose Batman series was a big hit for ABC in 1966, but not big enough of a hit for it to wind up getting cancelled and ultimately hitting the rerun circuit in 1968. At the same time, Dozier also produced a TV adaptation of another comic book staple, The Green Hornet. In between seasons one and two of Batman, Dozier thought it would be wise to strike while the iron was hot when it came to superheroes on TV. And considering how popular his other shows were, the only logical conclusion was to give Wonder Woman the TV treatment next. But 20th Century Fox, the company that produced Batman, wasn't just going to give Dozier a blank check right away. As is the case with many ideas, there had to be a proof of concept before a pilot could even be made. So, utilizing several of his writers from the Batman series, Dozier put together a five-minute pitch film in the hopes of selling his own vision of Wonder Woman to the TV networks. Cast in the main role was a little-known actress named Ellie Wood Walker, whose only acting role to that point was in a 1964 movie called The New Interns. Hopefully, in just five minutes' time, newcomer Walker and Dozier's crew can help bring the legend of Diana Prince to life. After all, the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Wonder Woman is a no-nonsense, ass-kicking, invisible jet-flying... Twenty-something spinster living with her mother while she's fumbling with a newspaper? This is supposed to be Wonder Woman, right? I mean, it did show the comic book in the title card. Why are we taking a peek in suburbia instead of an uncharted Amazonian island? Actually, that's only kinda right. What is? The commonly held belief that Wonder Woman hailed from Paradise Island among her fellow Amazonians. See, going as far back as the golden age of the character, Diana Prince was originally the name of a U.S. Army nurse during World War II who provided the primary alias for Diana Prince, nay, Wonder Woman. In 1942, Princess Diana met Diana Prince, who was sobbing. When Wonder Woman asked her what was wrong, Prince explained that her then-fiancé, Dan White, and this was long before Steve Trevor entered the picture, was in South America, and she lacked the funds to go to him. Noticing how similar they were in appearance, Wonder Woman gave Prince a large amount of money she had just earned from Al Kale's promotion of her bullets and bracelets routine. In exchange, Prince gave Wonder Woman her credentials and name, and it just took off from there. Does he ramble on like this all the time? That's nothing. He can go on and on forever about Jack Kirby. Wait, what? Huh? Hush you. Anyway, let's get back to this pilot, which they seem to want to make look like a sitcom for some reason. There's a big thunderstorm going on, which gets Wonder Woman's spidey senses tingling. I'm gonna pretend I didn't just hear you say that. Mother, mother, I won't be having any dinner tonight. No dinner? No. Oh, don't be silly. Where do you think all that strength comes from? Those gods? No, from my cooking. I have to help Steve. He's waiting at the airport and there's no plane. Look, you're not so smart that you can't take a mother's advice. Now, this is no kind of a night for you to be flying around in that outfit again. Mother! This is the kind of a night for you to watch TV or read the newspaper, eat your roughage. Uh, no offense to certain religious groups, but was Wonder Woman born and raised Jewish? I mean, this is supposed to be one of the most revered superheroes of all time, and here she is with a mother who's all but trying to be a yenta. All that's missing is her giving Diana a guilt trip about not being married at her age. The nation, the nation needs, needs Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. And what about Wonder Woman? Does the nation care what she needs? Like a fellow, for example, huh? Please, Ma, not now. No, sure not now. Never. How do you expect to get a husband flying around all the time? So, to recap what you just heard, one of the most prolific symbols of independent femininity is being shamed by your mother for not having a husband at the cusp of her 30s. Isn't it about time that you decide to stay in one spot for a change? You don't know how it feels to be the mother of an unmarried daughter your age. Why, the whole neighborhood's talking. Holy hell, if women's groups ever saw this, their brains would bleed over such outdated mentalities. 
Nevertheless, Diana eats up and has enough time to spare to change into her costume. Though, since this is the late 1960s, we don't get the twirling starburst effect Linda Carter would eventually give us. Instead, all it takes is a trip around the bookcase for Diana to transform herself into... Wonder Woman, who knows she has the strength of Hercules, who knows she has the wisdom of Athena, who knows she has the speed of Mercury, and who thinks she has the beauty of Aphrodite. To further show outdated ways of thinking, the next 50 seconds of this five-minute pitch film features absolutely nothing but Wonder Woman preening at herself in the mirror. Yikes. This looks like something Wonder Man would do. Who's Wonder Man? Uh, here we go. Wonder Man is a character in the Marvel Universe where the character is a robot, and he's a cyborg, and he's a human, he's an actor, he's, there's just oh so much. He's got bitchin' sunglasses, and he's just, he is the best. Nathan Fillion was supposed to play him in Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, Nathan Fillion's gonna play everything in every single movie, because, you know, that's fan casting, him and Idris Elba, they're everything. Anyway, Wonder Man made his first appearance in Avengers number nine. Created in part by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, he's wonderful, Eddie. He's a movie star. He's an actor. He's everything. That's what an actor is, a movie star. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so with about 45 seconds left in the pitch film, certainly Wonder Woman springs into action to save the day. Away, you vision of enchantment. You've got a job to do. So, as she gets into a flight formation that would make the Puma Man fly less like a moron, Mama Wonder has the last word. If you get a chance, stop by Kansas City and say hello to Uncle Amos. You know how much he likes you. And don't forget to pick up the phone and call when you get there, wherever you're going. I think what we just saw can be summed up with these simple words. What the hell? I mean, I understand that they only had five minutes to fill, but the least they could have done was to blow shit up or have Wonder Woman fighting something. Not showcase outdated social norms with stereotype after stereotype being enforced at every step. I ask you, gentlemen, where in the comics was Wonder Woman circa 1967? Well, by this point in time, we've reached the Silver Age of Comics, and those who worked on Wonder Woman decided to make the character a little more feminine in her mystique and her mythos. Incidentally, the line that the pitch film narrator said that compared her to the Greek gods was just about the only thing they got right. They didn't mention anything about how she actually gave up most of her power due to her relationship with Steve Trevor, who they barely made a passing mention in the pitch film, by the way, and how she spent most of the 60s and 70s learning hand-to-hand -hand combat in spite of creator Charles Marston's initial statement that she would fight not with fists or firepower. The pitch film clearly went in a campy direction because of how successful the Adam West Batman was doing, so perhaps the powers that be just wanted lightning to strike twice with the same formula. I thought you were a Marvel guy. If it means getting out of here sooner, I'll concede a little. Well, suffice to say, this pitch film did nothing either for Dozier, Fox, or Wonder Woman's chances of getting into another medium. But the notion wasn't completely dead in the water. Warner Brothers, who through a series of acquisitions and mergers in the 60s suddenly found itself as the owner of DC Comics, decided to give a TV adaptation for Wonder Woman another shot. And unlike William Dozier's pitch film, this would not only have a budget, but it would also be more fleshed out in terms of content, hopefully fleshed out enough for it to become its own series. Of course, this being the 1970s, things had to adjust a little bit to fit with the times. That the man-made world would one day require a unique woman, a Wonder Woman. And that's just the beginning. We'll tie this TV pilot up with a lasso of truth after the break. <laughs> Dressed this way, she's a Navy wave. But beneath that uniform, she is the Wonder Woman doll. And now you can create your own Wonder Woman adventures with these other dolls. Major Steve Trevor, Nubia, Wonder Woman, Super Foe. Gotcha, Major. Wonder Woman, hurry! I'll save you, Major. As soon as I tie up a few loose Wonder Woman, Major Steve Trevor, and Nubia dolls sold separately by Mego. 
Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you. Kids like kicks for what kicks has got. Moms like kicks for what kicks has not. Kicks has corn and nuts and nuts. Cause kicks are gonna make fancy stuff. No added colors. Kicks doesn't need them. No added flavors. Kids have to eat them. It's low in sugar so it's not too sweet. A good kicks breakfast, it's hard to beat. Kids like kicks for what kicks has got. Moms like kicks for what kicks has not. Kicks, kid tested, mother approved. Want to check out the rest of it? Go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives. Or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. March 12, 1974. Richard Nixon was trying to keep a low profile while claiming he wasn't a crook during Watergate. Steven Spielberg's first theatrical film, The Sugarland Express, was also his first box office hit. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain, we heard the all-too-familiar tones of Burt Bacharach's Nicky coming from our TVs, which can only mean one thing. That's right. What we're about to go over was actually a movie of the week that aired on ABC. And if we learned anything about TV movies of that era, this is about to get cheesier than a dairy farm working overtime. But before we go any further, a quick reminder of our ground rules when it comes to TV movies. Since more often than not, we have no behind-the-scenes info about the movie itself, anything we enter into the nine circles will be based solely on the plot of the movie, as well as a few choice moments of acting that we would consider to be less than desirable. And also, if there are any particular scenes in the movie that may be considered sin-worthy for whatever reason. Otherwise, we're judging the movie just for the movie. Nothing else. Unless you guys have anything to add to this. Yeah, wasn't this the movie where Wonder Woman is a blonde? Say what now? Yeah, I vaguely remember this now. They hired some blonde tennis star to play Wonder Woman, and that wound up pissing off a lot of the fans of the comic. It pisses me off too, and I never even read the comics. I mean, that's just messing with the primal forces of nature. It'd be like making Santa Claus's suit green, or having purple traffic lights. Wonder Woman, although she has every right to make independent decisions, isn't supposed to be blonde. Hell, even Sheldon Cooper is a voice of reason on that. I'm sorry, but in what universe is Wonder Woman blonde? <laughs> Relax, no one's gonna be looking at her hair. <laughs> Hopefully, that's not this movie's biggest problem. Oh, just wait. The problems with the movie won't drop all at once, but they'll still pile up. Well, Eddie is right about the casting. For the role of Wonder Woman, ABC and Warner Brothers tapped professional tennis player turned actress Kathy Lee Crosby to put on the bulletproof bracelets, but not a raven-haired wig. Crosby already had a couple of years of acting under her belt by appearing in various guest roles on shows like Marcus Welby, M.D., Barnaby Jones, and Cannon, just to name a few. So at least she wasn't completely green in front of the camera. Rounding out the cast were a number of character actors who I'm sure made appearances all over the place during the 70s, but didn't really have any breakout roles. Save for one major exception. That's right. Ricardo Montalban would appear in this as the movie's main villain, but we'll find out more about him once we get there. Also, from what I understand, all of the following events are supposed to take place within the timeline of the Silver Age. So all that stuff we mentioned earlier about giving up superpowers in favor of hand-to-hand -hand combat is going to apply here. With that said, let's begin. We begin with what honestly looks like the opening scene to a show like Mission Impossible, as a series of soldiers are stealing sets of books from various corners of the world. What the book's significance is, I'm sure will be explained at some point. But in the meantime, one of the villains thanks the soldiers for a job well done. You did a beautiful job, gentlemen. Beautiful. The bar is open. Why don't you have a drink? You deserve it. And as they get their drinks, a pair of leather double mint twin assassins enter and wipe out the group, only for villain one to take the books to his next destination. Tickets? In my pocket. The girl from the airline delivered them herself. 
He's not going to like this, George. Oh, don't think about that, Cass. Think about the money we now have that they would have had. Joey, I don't want any trace of these bodies found. With that much of an introduction in mind, we get our title sequence and our first instance of hearing the classic Wonder Woman theme song. Guess again. Huh? Well, it was the mid-70s. Synthesizers were in style back then. Yeah, but my ears feel like they're getting drilled by Lawrence Olivier in Marathon Man. Is it safe? Look, I tell you, I can't do This is easily the most annoying TV theme song I've heard since I reviewed Quark. Hang on, I gotta pop my ears so I can hear again. Ah, that's better. Anyway, after that bout of ear torture porn, we cut to a distant island in the middle of nowhere. Okay, so at least they're getting the Paradise Island part right. I hope. It was perhaps inevitable that the man-made world would one day require a unique woman. That day has come. You are that unique woman, Diana. You will be the Wonder Woman. Okay, hold it. I know we just went over this, but it's still pretty jarring to see a blonde Wonder Woman. I mean, has Wonder Woman ever not been a brunette in any of the characters' canon over the years? I've never really seen that. You know, I think she's always been a brunette. She She's done the different costumes and everything. There's always been a change, but otherwise... Yeah, she's done different costumes. She's also done different wardrobes. There was a period of time in the run of the first volume where it was all mod about the 60s, late 60s clothing and stuff like that. It was featuring Diana Prince as Wonder Woman. So that stuff changed. She was hip. She was now. She was wow. But, but the hair wow, stayed you're pretty a good much, pitchman. you know, stayed pretty much the same. Straight hair, kind of curly at the end, but it was not of varying color. It was just always the one. Okay, the less I distract myself from that detail, the sooner we can get this over with. While on Paradise Island, Crosby goes through the ritual of becoming Wonder Woman. You're endowed with extraordinary wisdom, love, and strength, daughter. And now you're charged with a mission. To accomplish that mission, you must leave this island. You must adopt other ways. For that is the only true means of taking our pure and true love of justice and right to that world beyond ours here. There's deep sadness in having you leave us, but there's also joy. The hope that your presence in the world of man will open closed eyes to the genuine value of women. Okay, gentlemen, here is your first test. How close to the comic book was that scene just now? I don't know if that's what I remember because the only thing I really based my Wonder Woman knowledge from the beginning was from the Linda Carter show. Not Did you say Linda like like your Tony Danzer or something? Something like that with a little twang in it. Yeah, oh, Angela. So my point of reference is a little skewed on, on this one. So I'm like, okay, I guess I kind of got to go with the way they're doing it here now. So I don't know about the accuracy. But you know I, what? Just I like anything else. Accuracy. Yeah, no. Like honestly, like, once you see the uh, blonde, you're just like, oh, huh. They care about we're continuity. We're telling a story here, and that's how you're gonna you're gonna accept it. And yeah, I could go on about that, but it, just... it, it's not good. Moving on, Crosby has now taken residence in Washington D.C., where she has taken her Clark Kent-like mild-mannered position as an assistant for an undisclosed spy agency. It's here where she listens to our exposition dump, as well as finding out why the stolen books are so important to the story. Gentlemen, the complete list of all our agents in the field their cover identities and their specific assignments has been stolen. As you all know, an agent in the field reports in every 72 hours at a prearranged time at 10 minute intervals, which means that we are completely out of touch with all of our agents for the next 72 hours. They can't be reached or warned between communications. If those lists and codes fall into the hands of our adversaries, our people will be at their mercy for the next three days. Completely vulnerable to be apprehended or eliminated. And I got to admit, were it not for the fact that a comic book character was intrinsically tied to this movie, this would make for a decent plot for a TV pilot about a spy agency. 
Of course, while most of the spies who worked there only thought of Crosby's Diana as just another secretary, only one person knew the truth. Steve Trevor, who in this version is neither a soldier in the army, nor is he played by Lyle Wagner, but rather the head of a spy agency played by nobody I've ever heard of before. What do you think, Dee? What can anyone think with that many lives in jeopardy? Steve, mm -hmm. I'll be away from the office for a while. A dental appointment I lost a filling. Well, it happens. I hope you'll feel up to coming in tomorrow. We never know how long these things will take. Phone in and let me know? First chance I get. I can call this dental pool and have someone come in and replace me while I'm gone. Hey, nobody can replace you. Okay, guys, how does that stack up? Rather stupidly. This is who this character is? This is deep pain. And, ouch. There's just, there's something about when you look at these interpretations of the character, it's it's like Matt Murdock is, you know, he's on like a three-day bender afterwards, and you know, he's like, ah, oh, I got my sense, ah, oh, let me throw and see if it lands. It didn't. It didn't. Yeah, not quite the, the hit that, it was a throw and a miss. There's oh so much weird stuff about this, and this is not even the weirdest stuff for me. Crosby then sets off for Paris due to a hunch she may have about finding the people who stole the books. A hunch which pays off when one of the evil Doublemen assassins notifies villain number one of her arrival, who then notifies his bigger boss of the same thing. You were right, Mr. Smith. She just checked into the Hotel Saint-Germain, room 702. Marvelous. It's one of ours. She should be eliminated. Just delay, George, 72 hours. Just delay, George, 72 hours. Violence and mayhem. That's so gosh. Crosby inevitably takes care of the assassin without ever changing costumes. Speaking of which, we remind you that this is taking place during the period where Wonder Woman is stripped of her powers due to reasons. So, in anticipation of the danger she faces, Crosby brings the costume with her in a suitcase. And saying that sentence out loud, it makes one want to pine for the twirling effect that would come years later. But before we get to the outfit in question, Villain number one manages to meet up with Crosby at dinner to make this rather awkward form of flirtation in this day and age. You are so totally captivating. Let me make love to you. Why? Because your eyes reach into you my- You misunderstood me. I didn't mean why should you want to. I meant why should I? So with that rebuke, we cut to Crosby in a phone booth. Remember those? Giving Steve a briefing. Trevor. You sound tired, Steve. Oh, this has been a tough one, but you did pick the right dentist, the Frenchman. The English dentist is in a hospital in Belgrade, and the other one is on a long vacation in China. How's it going? Somewhat involved, but I'm making progress. Just in time for somebody to try and run her down. Act 2 begins with Crosby narrowly escaping said rundown but not before planting a tracking device on the car. She then follows the car to one of your typical French mansions, where a phone call from our main villain awaits her. Hello? We uh, haven't met, and I, I really hate to have a guest at one of my parties that uh, I haven't welcomed personally. Then you weren't in your car when it attempted to run me down earlier? I was totally unaware of anything like that happening. I'll discuss it with Georges, I promise. <laughs> Are you going to play that clip every time Ricardo Montalban speaks? What? Aren't comic book geeks and Star Trek geeks one of the same? Why, you smug little... Whoa, whoa, easy there, Star-Lord. You want to get out of here alive, don't you? <sighs> Fine, I'll throw in a Fantasy Island clip next time he's on camera, okay? Anyway, Crosby is then trapped inside the courtyard, and she simply can't get out of there by climbing over the gate because it's electrified. And before you remind me, let me remind you that this was the era where she had no superpowers. Ergo, she simply can't fly her way out of there. Instead, she does the super heroic task of... Flicking a switch on a circuit breaker! Oh, what drama! She then returns to the hotel, where even more danger is afoot. Fortunately, she calls upon another superpower to help aid her a hotel guest in another room. Oh, my dear, what brings you to my door at this hour? Loneliness, I hope. My key. I've locked my key in my room. Pity. Won't you come in and tell me all about it? 
Uh, might I impose on you too? Oh, no imposition at all, my pleasure. Come in, come in. Unfortunately, that superpower doesn't work as Crosby is met in a room by the evil leather Doubleman twins and villain number one. You're not surprised. I wanted to surprise you. Now, why weren't you surprised? I take it the uh, trunk is for me. Had to guess your dimensions, but uh, I think it'll fit. Now, my friends are going to take you sailing for a few days. Any place you choose. Whether I like it or not. Oh, I think you'll learn to like it. And so, after what seemed like an eternity, Act 3 begins with an actual fight scene in this movie. Certainly, here is where we see the Wonder Woman many of us should know, right? That's it? I mean, I know TV movie budgets in the 70s were meager at best, but this is supposed to be Wonder Woman, right? The fight scenes in the Linda Carter version lasted at least a minute long. Here, in a 90-minute TV movie, no less, it's just boom, karate chop, and done. They better be saving up for something big later on. There's just something about the lame movement of when she, you know, kicks her leg, and it's literally just, eh. <laughs> I don't know, it's just, it's beyond hilarious to me. Or just the, ha, ah. <laughs> hi-ya. But we're missing that part. I wonder if that would have helped it. It's one kick and one karate chop to the neck, and George is down. Who is in this, I feel like, not George, sorry. I'm still thinking of uh, Ricardo Montalban. Who's basically doing his best, uh... His best Abner Smith, yes. What's his name? The one from Inspector Gadget, Claw. It's him. The entire time. You don't see the man's face for, like, ever. It's dumb. Why? What? What is he? He's a handsome man. Show the handsome man on the screen. You're paying for the handsome man. Put the handsome man on. Moving on. After rifling through villain number one's clothes, Crosby flies to New York for more clues. And while she's waiting for a cab at the airport, another cab just happens to be there watching everything. She's here now waiting for you. That's impossible. We had an hour lead on her. I'm standing here looking at her. It's that woman. Tell him we leave the airport by a different route. And tell him to have the messenger sent to Steve Trevor. But Ricardo, don't you want to wait for... The plane! The plane! To arrive? There, I mixed it up a little. Happy? Okay, now I dare you to throw in a Chrysler Cordoba reference next. Oh, also throwing some clips from the Naked Gun. Don't forget the Spy Kids movies. How about that hotel commercial where he says, Deluxe Continental Breakfast. Silence! I am only going to say this once. You are guests here against your will. If you want to get out of here against your will, don't tell me what to do in my own backyard. You got it? Yes, yes sir. sir. Now then, while Crosby is in New York, a suspicious crate is sent to Steve's office and is handled with the utmost importance. Those instructions came from the thief, and I'm to be alone when I open it. Could be there's an assassin in there, Steve. Sound test picked up a heartbeat or something like it. I have no choice but to follow their instructions, Colonel. Hey, chubby boy, where is your donkey? Hey, we didn't do that clip. No, 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 that, that, that one was for me. Anyway, this donkey proves to be a pivotal plot point later on. But first, back to New York, where the evil Doubleman twins stake out and plant a suspicious black box in Crosby's hotel. A box that, upon another conversation with villain number one, is revealed to have... A snake! So how does Wonder Woman get out of this one? This is room 519. Send up a container of milk and a saucer and tell the waiter to let himself into the room, but to take his shoes off in the hall first. And tell him there's a $50 tip if he gets in the next minute. Uh, are snakes attracted to shoes and milk? I'll feel this one. Since a snake is a reptile, reptiles have been known not to have mammary glands. They can't digest milk, ultimately killing them. Okay, that explains one thing, but what about the shoes? Depends on the kind of shoe you're wearing. I've been told, though, that snakes are more likely to attack you when you wear regular shoes, and that they're less inclined to do so when wearing sandals. How the hell do you know so much about snakes? I wouldn't be a Captain America superfan without knowing a thing or two about the Serpent Society. First appearance in issue number 310, October 1985. Sir, can we get on with this? 
Crosby then has another meeting with villain number one, and hopefully this is the meeting that actually helps propel what passes for a plot in the movie in motion. I'm empowered to offer you one million dollars to form a professional alliance with my employer. Well, that's very impressive, but I have everything I want. After rejecting villain number one's advances yet again, Crosby checks in with Steve yet again. Only this time, we find out the purpose of the donkey. Now you're supposed to put the money where? Two leather saddlebags then take the animal to a place in Nevada, a ghost town named Alba, at four o'clock this afternoon. And that's all? We give the burro a command in Spanish, slap it on the rump, and leave. Well, it could be worse. They could be trusting a wire transfer from Wells Fargo. Fortunately, we don't get someone trying to run over Crosby this time. Rather, she gets a surprise visit from one of her Paradise Island sisters. My mission is to bring you a message of great sadness, sister. One from among us has fled the island. Which of us? Angela. Angela is not to be trusted. She must now face her times of trial alone. So be it, sister. To my great sadness. And mine. Okay, gentlemen, has there ever been a time or two when any of Wonder Woman's fellow Amazonians turned against her? And if so, which time comes closest to what we just saw? I mean, has there? There has to have been at least one. I mean, Wait, let me check through these issues I brought in with me here. No, I think there has been. You gotta create some kind of conflict, because maybe the question comes up, who is the best on the island competition that they have? Somebody takes it too seriously. You brought your comic books to hell? Well... I think there's been conflict within the ranks, sure. So, there you go. I can't believe you brought your comics to hell. How? Where did you carry them? Back pocket. You got some big pants. Thank you. <laughs> so, with that warning heeded, we then see the fallen sister in cahoots with Mr. Rourke, for reasons that I'm sure are perfectly valid ones. In every illegal operation, there is a need for someone like George, Angela. Someone with an ego so large that he succeeds because he can't really live with failure. But inevitably, two things occur. First, he decides to take over at some point. And second, he runs up against a problem he can't really handle. I have revealed to you today these horrors in the hope that you will see the need for change. But always remember, what I have done here today is not a courageous act. The courage lies with a man who has the guts to say no to a fast food restaurant and eat a salad instead. Oh, come on, that clip doesn't even make any sense. Like I said, it's my backyard. Deal with it. From there, the spy agency tries to figure out the logistics of delivering a donkey full of money to its rightful destination. And maybe because this movie is duller than dishwater, but I find this explanation of transport as plausible as I find it batshit insane. That's a strange kind of messenger, don't you think, Steve? Oh, I thought so until I saw the topographical map of the area around Alba, Nevada. A burr is a perfect choice. Well, obviously they have to go through incredible lengths just to pay somebody off, because direct deposits weren't commonplace back in the 70s. Actually, the movie could if it wanted to. Direct deposits started as a series of government pilot programs in 1969, but it wasn't until the mid-70s when it began happening at commercial banks, and even with Social Security accounts. You know, you're only making the case stronger for yourself to be placed in our heresy circle, right? I'll be good. So we head off to the desert, where they send the donkey on its way. And it's here where, finally, after 42 minutes of more dry dialogue than a Christopher Guest movie, Crosby finally puts on the Wonder Woman costume and... What the hell is this? What's the deal with the star-spangled leisure suit? Where are the satin tights fighting for your rights? Granted, they're colored the old red, white, and blue, but this is not Wonder Woman's outfit. This is not the same character. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. My God, what have they done? Unless I'm missing something from the history pages, right? Hachi machi that suit. <laughs> that might be one of the absolute worst costumes I've ever seen in something comic book related to the point where, hey, Let's really go away from the source material. We got the blonde hair. We got a leisure suit, even though she runs around in you a pair of trunks. Let's do that. I just, I just can't get over how... I like, got nothing. Like, I, I get the idea of, well, God, we have to stay with the source material. No, I don't give a shit. You keep... like the, It's one of those things 
Like this is where I, you know, I put my fanboy hat on for a second. It, the, the thing about it is, it's insulting to the character. It's like, you know, hey, let's take Superman and get rid of his cape. Or hey, let's take Superman and get rid of his little uh, trunks. Or hey, let's get rid of Batman's stupid ears. He can't even hear out of them, Eddie. Why does he have ears? He's, it's a cowl. I don't get it. I know we've all been taught never to judge a book by its cover, but I think it's pretty easy to see why this version of Wonder Woman got rejected regardless of the plot. What we're looking at just isn't going to fly with those who have been following the comic book forever. Unfortunately, there's still 30 minutes left, so hopefully the action picks up a little. Act 4 begins with Wonder Woman being targeted by the Doubleman Assassins yet again. And were this the era where she would have actual superpowers, this would be over in about 12 seconds. Instead, through some sort of odd camera trickery, she just sneaks behind them and knocks them out. Again, no muss, no fuss. Now, I'm gonna ask you guys, if this were the Linda Carter series, how would you have improved that scene? An actual fight. Special effects. Wonder Woman using her superpowers? Linda Carter as Wonder Woman? Exactly. I have a feeling that because this was a 70s TV movie, the budget was big enough to only pay the actors scale and give Ricardo Montalban a year-long wardrobe of white suits, leaving nothing left over for any scenes with pizzazz. So little pizzazz, in fact, that the next big conflict is Wonder Woman chasing down the donkey after it seems to wander into different parts of the ghost town they're in. How fucking riveting! Unfortunately, the donkey was an unwitting pawn in a trap that sprung on Wonder Woman. And, quite possibly a viable explanation as to where the rest of the movie's budget went, as the room Wonder Woman is trapped in gets filled in with what I can only describe as that tricolor wax foam that you see at car washes mixed with oatmeal, which I guess would be threatening? Were it not for the fact that the wall where the foam is oozing from also happens to be closing in on Wonder Woman. So what's the point of the foam if the walls are closing in on her? Well, we won't know because she manages to break down the door before anything of consequence happens. Meanwhile, we join villain number one and the fallen Amazonian, who we should probably mention was played by one Miss Anitra Ford, who you might remember best as one of the original Barker's Beauties on The Price is Right during its first few seasons on the air. She also did some acting on the side, including an appearance in the original Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds. Now, this is actually kind of a unique moment, because you rarely, if ever, get to see game show models do much of anything outside of showing prizes off. So, I'm kind of curious as to how she plays here as fallen Amazonian Angela. Why don't we just pick a comfortable spot where we can wait for the burrow and relax? George, you don't want to relax. Now, why would you say that? Pick a target. You pick it. That stump over there. How much? Name your own price. For hitting that stump, George. Oh, 50. You're on. All right. Now hit the javelin you just threw. Devil or nothing. You're on. Okay. She's not bad. She's poised. She knows how to use a weapon. She's portraying an Amazonian. And we should also mention that she has dark hair. You know where I'm going with this. Why the hell is she not Wonder Woman? Because Kathy Lee Crosby was the bigger name. Come again? I'm sure Miss Ford does fine here, but at the end of the day, TV producers are more willing to take safer chances on people with acting experience than someone else who, except for her day job, is basically an unknown in comparison. Why do you think critics lambasted Vanna White when she did that TV movie where she played Aphrodite? What was that? Well, thanks a lot. Now you just started my to-do list for season four. Sorry, I didn't mean just to. Just for doing that, I want Captain America here to talk about the next scene. What did I do? Peter struck the lightning. And you're a Marvel fan talking about a DC character against your will. If you don't, both of you will be damned for all eternity. Uh, so, so as villain number one and Angela continues to waste the viewer's time, we see Wonder Woman entering the scene by riding the donkey. Angela tries to show off her javelin skills to take down Wonder Woman, but little do they know that Wonder Woman scored a gold medal in the javelin catch, and immediately turns it into a quick round of javelin fetch, much to Angela's disappointment. This isn't the way I expected to see you again, Angela. What other way could there be now, Diana? 
Must we make war against each other? We have no choice. We both know your goal and mine. The last time we were in contest together, there was no victor. I remember. The two of them duel the same way you'd expect Robin Hood to take on Little John. And since this is a Warner Brothers show, I half expect them to go full Daffy Duck in the scene. Oh, ha, guard, turn, parry, dodge, spear, ha, thrust! Unfortunately, that would qualify as entertainment, as we're possibly bearing witness to the most boring fight scene ever. I mean, sure, it's two women fighting, but it's not a cat fight by any means. Plus, they do parts of the scene unnecessarily in slow motion, not to mention... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm still hung up on these fashion choices here. I know the mid-70s was a prime dumping ground for taste, but as questionable as Wonder Woman's outfit is, I am baffled over Angela's choice of outfit. She's fighting like she's a J.C. Penney model who got stiffed a paycheck. At least the other Amazonian women who came to Crosby earlier were dressed in Paradise Island attire. Unless you're one of Charlie's Angels, a brown sweater and dress slacks is not proper fighting attire. Regardless of clothing that Tim Gunn would go at with a blowtorch, Wonder Woman fends off her fallen sister. But not without a prerequisite claim that they will meet again. No more fighting between us. Hold no hope that I shall ever return to the island. I've made my choice. I want the things this world has to offer. We were so much alike. Never. Then our sisterhood ends here. Not until I repay my debt. I owe you my life. Set your price, I'll pay it. That was in our childhood. I won't be indebted to you, Diana. Set your price. But only if the price is right. You don't get to do the rim shots around here! Anyway, as a lovely parting gift, Angela lets Wonder Woman know where the donkey is being taken. So, after a trek across the Grand Canyon, we get to Ricardo Montalban's secret headquarters, where he immediately turns the screws on his soon-to-be former partner in crime by setting up a side wager. I'll make you a wager for a million. What is it? That she followed you here. <laughs> she couldn't. Even if Angela lost the fight and told her where to come. She's on foot. Well, then you can't lose. Surprise, surprise. Act 5 begins with her tracking down villain number one. I've looked forward to meeting you for a very long time. As I've looked forward to meeting you, Mr. Smith. And with that taking place, we now get the moment where Wonder Woman finally meets Mr. Rourke face to face, which is especially fitting because for about 90% of the movie, we only saw Montalban sitting in an obscured view without ever turning to camera. I guess the movie did this so that when the time came to reveal him, it'd be a bit of a payoff. Or at least it would have been were it not for the fact that he got high billing as the movie's special guest star. So in actuality, the whole cloak and dagger stuff is ultimately pointless. But on the other hand, it's still Ricardo Montalban doing what he does best. Who's charisma while saying ridiculous dialogue and rocking a white suit at the same time. On that note, it's my pleasure to present to you what is arguably the best dialogue that this movie has to offer us. You are exactly as I picture you. Exactly. You're taller than I expected. Will you answer a question for me? I can. That uh, burro, we uh, scrubbed off the ultraviolet spray, deactivated the uh, signal transmitters, visually confused it with three other identical, identical burros, and you still followed it. How? Tracks, Mr. Smith. The most basic and simple factors are the ones we overlook. Tracks, of course, tracks. Uh, I have another question. I left Captain Teeb a full hour, or more, before you could have, and you were in New York well ahead of me. How? I have this marvelous plane that flies that much faster than yours. I'd like to see it sometime. I'm afraid that's just not possible. Even if I give you my word, I'd make no attempt to steal it. It's not bad. You see, my plane is invisible. Oh, now you reference something related to the comics? To add insult to injury, we don't even get to see the jet? Well, of course you can't see the jet. It's invisible. No, I mean... You know damn well what I mean! I meant that the movie couldn't afford to do any special effects to make it look like she's flying an invisible plane. It had to be a passing reference to it instead. Well, like you said earlier, it's a 1970s TV movie with a minuscule budget. They could only make do with what they had. TV movie or otherwise, it's still a Warner Brothers production. Warner Brothers! 
didn't they have deep pockets in the 70s? Do you really want to go through the history of Warner Brothers with 13 minutes left in the movie? <sighs> Point taken. So, we get to our climax. Montalban does what every James Bond villain does best and details the how and why of the whole thing, which is also filled with Emmy-worthy dialogue. We have 15 million dollars in these pouches, and I have 10 books which, since the ransom is paid, I intend to return to your government. That should assure your mind that uh, your agents will be safe. Now, I propose to leave here with the money by helicopter, leaving the books with you. That seems fair. If this was a normal business transaction, Mr. Smith, it would be. But you don't think it is. You violated the law, and there is the basic morality of right and wrong. To which you adhere. To which I've dedicated my life, Mr. Smith. Abner. Oh, please. Abner. I request nothing beyond the thickly cushioned luxury of seats available even in soft Corinthian leather. Come on. You knew I had to do that one sooner or later. And then, just when you think this movie couldn't act as any more of a sleeping pill, something exciting actually winds up happening. Blank and you'll miss it. You were wearing two bracelets when you arrived. Now there is only one. Where is the other? Wonder Woman then tries to get away with the books and the money. But with ten minutes to go, she's put in danger one more time. Why the gun, George? We've got to kill her! No, 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 no. Killing people makes other people much more angry than they ever get over money. Makes them dogged. We don't need that. And we may want to do business with them again. <laughs> okay. This movie's almost worth watching just for Montalban's line deliveries, silly as they may be sometimes. I sincerely wish we might have spent more time together. Just to have a laugh or sing. Regardless, Wonder Woman is in a trap. Again. For the umpteenth time. And she gets out. Again. Also for the umpteenth time. And then finally, 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 we have our big climax. Montalban gets away on a raft, and with little time to waste, Wonder Woman realizes to herself, Hey, there's a motorcycle ex machina here. She uses that to chase Montalban down the Snake River, and eventually catches up to him by diving into the river. Which Montalban almost takes too surprisingly well. Wonder Woman, I love you. And that's pretty much it. And I'll be honest, I've got nothing. This was a bland movie with a bland payoff. And knowing what you two have taught me about the comic, I'm honestly amazed that they even considered doing a full Wonder Woman TV series after a pilot like this. What do you think? It was the living shits. <laughs> How did that happen? Where does she get those wonderful toys? I mean, yeah, thanks a lot. Oh, now we're going to do Jack Palance references halfway through. <gasps> <gasps> well, despite the fact that this ultimately led to something better, we must still lay down the law here. Where does Wonder Woman 1974 get lassoed in telehell? Before you cry out Great Hera in disgust, let's see if she can escape the perils of our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! I have never seen anything try to be any less like its source material than I did here. At least in the 1967 pitch film, for better or worse, it actually had Wonder Woman in it. If they were to strip away all of the Wonder Woman-related items that took place here, all that would remain was a TV movie about a super spy, not unlike other popular TV shows that aired around this time. Think Mission Impossible or The Avengers. Uh, no, 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 not those Avengers. I'm, I'm talking about John Steed and Emma Peel. May she rest in peace. The movie tried to combine both superhero and spy worlds evenly, but it wound up confusing whoever was watching the show into thinking they were watching their favorite hero come to life, when instead, they got this. Something that felt like Wonder Woman in name only. So, in the eyes of comic book fanatics who tuned in, they certainly felt that they were getting tricked into watching something that it wasn't. An easy ring of the bells for fraud, and heresy against the beloved character. And so disappointed the fans were that they denounced this version of Wonder Woman ever since. 
leaving said fans feeling angry that somebody would mess with success. Hence, wrath. Not only that, but this movie had the look and feel of something that cost $96.78 to make. And if both Warner Brothers and ABC were willing to shell out a little more, then perhaps the movie might have gotten away with getting by on what little charm there was. Instead, both parties were looking as much to make a buck on a popular brand as they were willing to save a buck in trying to bring that brand to life. Chalk one up for greed. And let's also not forget the fact that even though there would eventually be a far more successful Wonder Woman TV show, it certainly wouldn't be based on anything we've seen here in this movie, leaving blonde Wonder Woman trapped in the clutches of Limbo. Do you guys have anything to add to this? The uh, Super Friends Wonder Woman can be put a little bit higher than this first live-action portrayal, quote-unquote. I have to agree. <laughs> I do that, yes. That, I think, was probably my first Wonder Woman visual experience before Linda. It was the Super Friends, Ted Knight. I'm sure Gal Gadot, just, you know, she watched this performance and she's just like, wow, I'm not gonna do any of that. You sure she had to go back that far with the research? Oh, I'm sure she doesn't even... I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm the only experience she had with uh, Kathy Lee David Crosby was, you know, when she gave her her key at the uh, valet parking at the Oscars Yes, that invited year. to the screening. There you go. I'm sure she did. Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman 1974 earns five out of nine circles of telehell. There's an old saying about how wonders never cease. But if the powers that be at ABC and Warner Brothers had their way, Wonder Woman's TV fate would have ceased to be for certain. The TV ratings for the movie were described as, quote, respectable, but not exactly wondrous, end quote. Which stands to reason, considering that the movie's competition that evening were that of Hawaii Five-0 on CBS and NBC's Mystery Movie Block. Fortunately, by 1975, all parties involved got back to basics. A new TV movie pilot was commissioned that was based more on the original concept of the comic created by Charles Marston. The rest is history. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman was finally available in a medium where she can be viewed as a flesh-and-blood persona that people could look up to, and was finally seen as an equal to her male superhero counterparts. In spite of the fact that the character has seen numerous iterations in both animated and motion picture form since then, it is the 1976-79 series starring Linda Carter that's remained one of the most fondly remembered entities in pop culture history, spawning a new batch of fans worldwide, giving them the notion that they too can be as strong as an Amazonian. Even if the character would never have another traditional TV series after the show ended, the fondness for the show remains to this day. Don't you agree, gentlemen? Thank God for Linda Carter. I think overall, on the whole, with the character, Wonder Woman is one of those characters that is one of the most important figures in pop culture history. It's just a shame this movie sucked. A lot. Like, super massive black hole. Nothing comes out. It all goes in and that's it. Bye-bye, Birdie. Um, great inspiration, great no. ideals for no. I'm talking about the general character and the general concept. It's the idea, please. And that's why I think that's she's been the character's been so enduring and lasting. And on that note, the two of you are now free to go. Wait a minute, didn't we forget something? Quiet, Peter. He's letting us out of here. You said there wasn't another Wonder Woman TV series. Don't you know about the 2011 pilot? Peter, don't! It was produced by David E. Kelly and starred Adrian Palicki, and it is a legendarily bad pilot. Somehow worse than Wonder Woman 74. Peter, I'm begging you! And don't even get me started on the costume. It looked like something a clown in drag would wear. See, this is why I don't like having guests over. They spend an hour over here and they feel like they own the place. Not only that, but they leave so much junk around. I mean, all these comic books that are still in their plastic bags. Old ones. Well, who says hell doesn't have any fringe benefits? Next time on Telehell, for the first time ever, we're going to take down an animated TV series. But not just any one. One that totally pisses on the legacy of several all-time classics. Hmm. 
I just made a tremendous decision. Feed me. Chill out, Sprout. Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Super incredible special thanks to Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson of The Marvelous for being our guests today. You can catch them wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. Just search for The Marvelists. Additional thanks to both gentlemen for helping us rewrite this episode and making sure that it sounded like it made sense in some way. We could not have done this without you, and don't be a stranger, okay? Otherwise, here's the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me. Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Not unlike certain viruses, Telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Hachimachi. Ah. Well, that was fun. Uh-huh. I don't know. You know what? I... Some bitch! He's got my comic books! 